it's one thing to disagree about whether you like football or baseball or whether you like chicken or beef. It's one thing to disagree about those things. It's another thing entirely to have profound disagreements on religious, moral, or political philosophy. So how do you navigate that kind of, you know, intense disagreement and maintain friendships is really the angle that I wanted to come at the book from. And so those are the kind of the different expertises. Pete's profoundly good, actually, asking questions that cause somebody to rethink the things they already think. He doesn't necessarily change anybody's mind. He just has this really profound knack for asking questions that unsettle existing belief structures. That's sort of the perspective that Peter comes from. How do you do interventions in people's belief structures so that they can reconsider and live a better life and a more examined life as a result? And mine is how do you live with people and be friends with people that you don't agree with? As a young mother, I experienced a paradigm shift that transformed how I saw education and ultimately the world around me. I started this podcast, The Luminous Mind, to connect with and learn from people who are disrupting the status quo in how they learn, educate, and live in the world around them. Prepare for a paradigm shift. Light a candle. Light your world. Benjamin Franklin said, instead of cursing the darkness, light a candle. You're listening to The Luminous Mind with your host, Rebecca Bowman. Today's Firestarter is James Lindsay. James is the founder and president of New Discourses, an educational resources platform designed to break down the barriers to effective communication and understanding in our highly polarized cultural landscape. He's the author of six books, most recently, How to Have Impossible Conversations with Peter Boghossian and the forthcoming Cynical Theories with Helen Pluckrose. He is best known for his participation in the Grievance Studies Affair, which received international attention and headlined in newspapers around the world, including on the front page of the New York Times. He has a PhD in mathematics and is a vigorous critic of cynical theories in all their manifestations. His essays have appeared in major venues, including the New York Times, LA Times, USA Today, Time Magazine, Scientific American, and the Philosopher's Magazine. Welcome, James. Yeah, thank you. I'm so excited to have you on our podcast. I've been pestering James for quite some time on Twitter because I think he has amazing things like we read in the bio. He's the president of New Discourses, but I was particularly intrigued with the book, How to Have Impossible Conversations that you co-authored because, you know, where we are a disruptive podcast, I find myself uh, having impossible conversations (laughs) with an awful lot of people just in the general public that may not be really into, you know, those disruptive topics or things that people are doing that are off the wall type of thing. But before we get into that kind of stuff, I'd like to know how you go from getting your PhD in mathematics to what you're doing now. Do you want to give us some background to that? I mean, it's kind of a wandering story, but uh, the long and short was that I got a PhD in mathematics in 2010, and then due to pressures around family life and so on, I did not pursue my academic career any further, and so I left academia, and I got 
bored <laughs> academically pretty quickly. So I started getting involved in looking into the philosophy of science and these kinds of things that I was always sort of interested in, just sort of as my own reading. I also ended up getting involved in the new atheist movement, which was coming up because in 2010 and 11, there was this actually going back into even 2009, there was this really big push that was looking like it might be successful to push biblical creationism into schools. And I got all worked up about that. And so I got involved in the atheist movement, which means I became in a sense, some sort of a social activist, which then put me in touch with the culture war. And the culture war was still pretty modest at the time, although, you know, it wasn't comfortable then either. Uh, and it was particularly starting to get nasty even by 2011 and 12 and the atheist movement itself, which I think was kind of a canary in the coal mine for, um, broader society in terms of seeing what the movement called social justice can do when it's kind of unleashed in its full potential in a community. It collapsed <laughs> to tell the story in, in its briefest form as the result of woke agitation, if you will. So uh, anyway, being involved with all of that, watching that develop within that community, I got very interested in studying I was studying religious psychology to try to understand both sides of it and moral psychology to understand both why people would be religious and why so many atheists were acting like they were religious. And so I started studying religious and moral psychology. I started looking even at the psychology of authoritarianism, and I started to get a pretty comprehensive picture of what was going on. And then Peter and I, Peter Bogosian that I wrote How to Have Impossible Conversations with, had this crazy idea at the end of 2016 that we would write this hoax paper on gender studies because we saw that a lot of the problems were coming out of gender studies. And so we wrote this crazy paper called The Conceptual Penis as a Social Construct. It got published by a journal that's probably predatory. Okay, say that title again. because uh, <laughs> The Conceptual Penis as a Social Construct. <laughs> Okay. Do you want to explain that to us a little bit? I mean, it's probably, <laughs> yeah, sure. So conceptual penis as a social construct was, as I said, it was meant to be a hoax paper. So it was supposed to be a ridiculous, bogus argument that had the thesis that penises aren't really best thought of as an anatomical organ that men or males have, uh, but rather as in terms of the social construct around the penis that has come to dominate and that that social construct is the source of basically all of our problems, including climate change. And so it got published by a probably predatory or otherwise very low ranking academic journal. And we spiked the football and said, look how stupid gender studies is. And people went berserk as a result <laughs> of that. And so that was in May 19th, um, 2017 when that happened. And so by June, Peter and I had resolved that we'd go ahead and redo the experiment and do it right. So we ended up diving into this whole, in the meantime, by the way, I'm taking from Peter's work in, in Socratic dialogue and so on. We had started writing a book called How to Have Impossible Conversations. So we're doing these two things at the same time. That was just based in Peter's dissertation work and, and subsequent work in Socratic pedagogy, theory of education, that is. And so anyway, we started to do the hoax thing correctly. This turned out to be wildly successful. It's now known as the Grievance Studies Affair. Some people called it Sokol Squared after the physicist Alan Sokol. He's now a mathematician, in fact, uh, who did a similar experiment back in the 90s. And since then, because I became all of a sudden a uh, 
something of a globally recognized icon for this problem in parts of the academic literature, I decided I probably really need to become genuinely conversant and expert in it. So now all I study is critical theory and the history of how it came to be what it is today under the name the social justice movement. That's, uh, I imagine, I mean, I'm like, oh, I want him to dive into this topic and this topic. Like, you know, when you're talking about that new atheist movement and how, you know, the push for biblical sciences in the schools, what was your interest in that? I actually am not religious. And so I don't think that there is a place for religion of any sort in the schools, unless it's kind of like a sociological comparative religions thing. It says, oh, this is basically what Christians believe. This is basically what Muslims believe. Mm-hmm. This is basically what Buddhists believe, so on and so forth. Just so and you can are, have good conversations with people because you so, understand. Right, yeah. right, exactly. But to teach the actual theology is, in my opinion, outside of the scope of what at least public education is for. If people want to teach it in private education, of course, that's their business. If they want to send their kids to private schools or homeschooling or whatever, that's also their business. You teach them whatever you want, as long as, you know, they meet certain basic standards, I suppose. So I was pretty concerned that, you know, this was an encroachment on the uh, establishment clause. So, I mean, I became very alarmed about it and I got very activist against that uh, kind of like, you know, education activist kind of thing. Like, like let's keep that that wall of separation between church and state steady. Let's not let the state dictate what's proper Christian teaching. Let's not let the Christians come into the schools and teach their religion as though it's secular fact or whatever. So let's keep the wall built between those two things. So that's what dragged me into the into the atheist movement in the first place was that particular issue. It's really interesting, actually, looking back on it. You can see in ways that a lot of times people get dragged into a lot of activism over a single issue that they yeah. think is important to them. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I'm, I'm like that. You know, I've dragged into several things by just one topic, you know, that is an interest to you. So I, I was just interested in that. And then the gender studies, your uh, theory that you wrote with that I mean, that's one thing, even as a woman, that bothers me because I I am a mother of three boys that I see that if they behave a certain way towards a girl, they're called all kinds of names and everything is blamed on them. But I see girls come back and do and say things to my boys that I think is uh, abusive, for one, and that they could never get away with. Do you have more to say? Like, what's the whole idea with your feeling about, like, gender studies? And do you agree with what I'm saying? Or are you more Yeah, like- I totally, totally do agree with what you're saying. There's, there's, so gender studies actually is kind of an offshoot of feminism, Mm-hmm. And that developed starting in the late 1960s, going through the 1970s is when it really got legs put under. It started off as women's studies, in fact. Then people started looking, you know, how do you broaden that? They started, actually, there is a thing called masculinities studies that studied from a feminist perspective, of course. And then uh, eventually they kind of summarized it all under gender studies. And gender studies then later got infused with what's known now as queer theory uh, in the 80s and 90s. And so it's kind of this offshoot of feminism and being that it's positioned as a critical study of how gender and sex and then in fact to some degree sexuality are relevant in society. As it's a critical study, it thinks in terms of power dynamics that 
are kind of cartoonish and, and fake. You know, they say that they're historical and therefore they're permanent and it's baked into all the systems and all of this. So that, that allows them to justify, at least for themselves, setting up double standards like what you're talking about, mm-hmm. where as the feminist, I guess she's a philosopher, Christina Summers wrote, I think in the 90s, she wrote a book called The War on Boys. So you already had stuff like this starting. So there's definitely this theoretically justified, I don't think it's ethically justified, but this theoretically justified double standard that boils down pretty close to man-hating as a part of what gender studies is all about. So, I mean, if you want to get into gender studies specifically, we can talk about it probably for two hours (laughs) about what it is. But it's just in terms of like kind of the activism that it does and that it produces, the double standards that you're seeing are correct. There are even deeper reasons to be worried about gender studies if you want to be worried about gender studies. It doesn't just blame men and erect these double standards. In fact, that's more province of feminism than it is gender studies specifically. Gender studies, in fact, denies the existence of any biological connection whatsoever to gender and says that it's all socially constructed and therefore... For example, your boys are behaving in ways that they've been socialized to believe is correct for boys, and that way is also programmed to belittle and disenfranchise girls and women. And so they're reproducing those systems of oppression. And the key thesis of gender studies, though, is that all of that's fake because gender itself is fake. Gender is merely a social construct. It's merely a product of performative behaviors that are are done throughout society and taught to everybody through social practices. And as a result, if we just completely rethought how all of our social practices were, if we disrupted all the existing social norms, then we would unmake the existing paradigms of gender, make new paradigms of gender, and we could remake them so that they don't create and maintain that oppression. But of course, like I said, the whole thing's built around erecting a double standard. So it would actually, and does actually, and is actually creating oppression in the other direction. Yes. Yes, I agree. So I'm older, probably more so than yourself. And I grew up, I mean, I I would consider myself somewhat of a feminist. I mean, as soon as I met my husband, I'm like, don't expect me to stop my education because that's, you know, I saw women having to do that, put their careers on hold to have men do that. So we always work together in that regard. And then I've raised my sons, (laughs) you know, I have three sons, I have one daughter, but I've raised them to be like, when the whole Columbine shooting happened uh, was when my first boy was born. And so I was like, okay, I'm not going to have any guns in the house because, you know, I kind of felt that way, like that women feel like um, if we just train them correctly, they're going to not, you know, have these ideas. But what I realized is my oldest son, no matter what he picked up, it was a gun. And I realized that men have an inherent desire to want to protect women. And all of my boys, I had dolls, I had, you know, I had, I had all that stuff equally put in the house so that they had a choice and they could select it. And I found my own personal issues. I mean, of course, my boys, they love dancing and they love singing and they love that kind of stuff, but they have that inherent feeling to be like that. Anyway, where I'm going is that I've done the experiment myself. You know, I've tried it. What they're saying is, is not true in my personal opinion, because I've tried to, you know, raise my children as gender neutral, but I see them naturally conforming one way to the other and my boys more so than, you know, my youngest boy 
he loved all the same things his sister did like dolls and and everything but as he's grown it's shifted you know over to so anyway i don't know i yeah, have a they, lot of frustration about it myself but yeah it's um it's really frustrating in fact because well and i is, worry what kind of place they're going to have in the world and i see depression hitting boys so much harder you know suicide rates are way higher and that's what i've posted several times that you know if we're going to talk about equality let's talk about how unequal that side of it is you know so anyway right well this ideology that that this is all embedded in actually is not interested in equality and in fact they no, frequently yeah. They frequently say so. Sometimes they don't. And it depends on which one's writing and how they're saying it. And they use the word equality in a kind of slippery way. But they very often will explicitly say that because things are already unequal, applying equality maintains inequality. So we therefore can't have equality. We have to adjust the system or systems so that things can be made equal, which is means, you know, the equality of outcome has to be ensured. And so it's totally disconnected from reality. There is, of, of course, a kernel of truth. Gender roles, gender norms, and so on actually do spread socially. They do have elements to them that are socially constructed. But there are also, as you're noticing with your children, very apparently pretty profound underlying factors that lead people to be interested in different things and choose different behaviors yeah. and uh, focus on, on, you know, whether it's dolls versus guns or trucks or, you know, whatever it happens to be that different kids get into. And it's kind of the consensus view in science now that uh, there's a degree to which social influences shape these things. And there's a degree to which biology shapes these things and they interact somehow. But gender studies in particular says that it is 0% biology and 100% just social interaction, which is insane. Yeah, it's bogus stuff. I could go on and on. Like I said, I feel um, uh, very frustrated in because I grew up wanting that equality. You know, like I said, it was 70s, 80s, where women were always told, oh, you can't do that or you can't do that, this, which I have never done with my kids. You know, like if a boy wants to dance, go ahead, do that. <laughs> you know, right. I feel like like those Gen Xer parents, we get it. Like we understand, but somehow from that to what it's gone now is like a total like, you know, it's no longer acceptable as a man to like uh, women things and to be still called a man. And, you know, I mean, just, it's just a confusing mess. So pretty crazy mean, how it's yeah. like re reverse reverting us back to like strict gender roles yeah. where like people have to be put into these boxes and then have to be forced to choose. Do you want to be, you know, hegemonic or do you want to be counterculture? And you have to pick which side of the, the oppressor versus oppressed dialogue you want to be on it's really yeah. the whole thing is just so toxic and it's, it's amazing it's, that it's caught on so far and why it's confusing children you know i'm right at the end of, i'm a, i guess a little younger than you i'm guessing but only a little I'm right <laughs> at the end of the gen x anyway and so it's like people from our generation are just like do what you want yeah it's cool be you and yeah. it's like somehow the be you message is like been bulldozed and now it's like let's do this constant never-ending complicated navel gazing about who we are and make that the most important thing and then start introducing all these complicated topics like oh well 
you know, you like boy things, that means you might really be a boy down inside. And it's like, you're reinforcing, what are you doing? Why are you yeah, reinforcing you're putting this back in where we were trying to get out of, you know, you know, that it's okay as a woman to want to have a career and it's okay, you know, to go out and wrestle and do all that stuff that boys do. But yet anyway, it's, it's so frustrating. frustrating. Well, so that's why we wanted to write a paper <laughs> showing that that stuff. I mean, it's like people all the time ask, well, what made you want to do that? It's like, look at it. <laughs> Just look at what it's doing. Look at how powerful it is and look how crazy it is. So we, we weren't sure that they even knew what they were talking about. And so we wanted to write a hoax to find out if they knew what they were talking about. That's interesting. I'll have to link that paper in as well. But let's kind of move on to what I, you know, originally contacted you about, about how to have impossible conversations. And like you said, it's, what has it been like the boat anchor? basically. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really difficult because, um, you know, people get really pissed off at me on Twitter all the time. And I kind of have a rule. I don't try to be rude on Twitter, but I have a, a tit for tat rule. And so if somebody's rude to me, I'm rude back. And then they, they get mad. And then they post a picture of like the cover of my book, how to have impossible conversations when I'm rude back to them. And it's like, uh, well, <laughs> you were rude first. And yeah. I'm, I understand it's not the best behavior to model on Twitter, but Twitter is sort of like the jungle. And if you don't put up some shields and have some thorns, you get torn up. Yeah. And so it's not a conversational environment, but so it's really been kind of a, like, like I said, you know, like an anchor or albatross or something that, that I think is a little bit unfair. Of course, Peter and I had different motivations and different aspects that we brought to the book. Do you want to specify that? Like how did each of you contribute to this co-authored work of how to have impossible conversations? Yeah. So the, the backbone of what's going on was based in what Peter did his doctoral research in you know, 20 something years ago. And that is using Socratic dialogue to change people's belief structures such that they can live better lives. And in particular, his doctoral thesis involved looking at ways that you could go into the prison system and use Socratic dialogue and Socratic education methods to get people to reconsider their moral priorities and try to use that as a program to talk them out of, to get them to talk themselves really out of a life of crime and the value structures that support being able to, to live with yourself as a criminal. And in the state of Oregon's penitentiary system, it actually had some, I guess, significant degree of success. And so he's always been very interested in essentially how do you move the moral mind? Uh, how do you get people to reconsider their values and try to live a more examined life? You know, if you read the book, you find that there's a lot of talking about doing interventions, belief interventions, and so on. And that's really rooted in Peter's approach. He really wants to get into understanding how and why people claim to believe what they believe or know what they know and get them to reconsider, especially, like I said, value structures to decide if maybe they're wrong about some of that stuff and to consider that maybe there are other alternatives or other approaches that might work better. And his his work is based in the Socratic method, reaching all the way back to Socrates, who he can quote rather at length. And so my situation is a little bit different. I am fairly left-wing so far as politics go. As I've already said, I'm an atheist, uh, and I grew up in the Southeast, which is renowned for being kind of the opposite of both of those things. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so much of my life 
has been, and I was very upset with it in say 2010 and 11 when I first started getting involved and became activist oriented in having to negotiate very diplomatically or very, uh, in various ways, we'll just say, uh, the fact that my moral, religious, political value structures didn't match most of the people around me. So I had to be friends with people who don't have the same beliefs about pretty much everything. And I had to figure out ways to do it. And so very early on in the 2010, 11, 12 time, I felt very silenced. I navigated it mostly by shutting up and just being kind of bullied by the prevailing dominant opinion that I had to agree with or else I was going to have to deal with arguments or not having friends or whatever. Yeah. So solving that problem in a practical sense has been a real life concern for me over the past 10 or more years or really 15 years or so as I grew into like proper adulthood and political consciousness, if you will. I hate that phrase. It's, we shouldn't use that phrase, but became more politically aware of what's going on. And so the contribution that I wanted to bring to the book was how do we maintain friendships with people we don't have the same views as it's one thing to disagree about whether you like football or baseball or whether you like, you know, chicken or beef. It's one thing to disagree about those things. It's another thing entirely to have profound disagreements on religious, moral, or political philosophy. Or if you want to stick with the two examples I gave with like sports, whether you like football or baseball is one of those things that most people don't get too worked up about. But then if you, it's like, I'm a such and such, you know, pick yeah. your favorite team fan. I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan and you're a Green Bay Packers fan. And now it's like, you guys have to hate each other. There's like this weird moral thing that gets brought into it. And then with food, it's like, you know, maybe you like Gosh. beef and I like chicken, but then the <laughs> vegan shows up or the paleo person shows up and all of a sudden it, it's not fun anymore. So how do you navigate that kind of, you know, intense disagreement and maintain friendships is really the angle that I wanted to come at the book from. And so those are the kind of the different expertises. Pete's, I don't want to say that Pete's expertise is in changing people's minds because that's not correct. Pete's profoundly good actually at asking questions that cause somebody to, to rethink the things they already think. Um, he doesn't necessarily change anybody's mind. He just has this really profound knack for asking questions that unsettle uh, existing belief structures. I've seen him just sit down with people that he barely knows, in fact, and talk about their romantic relationships. And the next thing you know, it's like they break up like two weeks later because he asked the questions that completely unsettled the fact <laughs> that they're, they're living a lie in an unhappy relationship and would be better off getting out of it. He has this, re and it's not that he's trying to do it on purpose. He's just asking questions and it's got a, that's sort of the perspective that Peter comes from. How do you do interventions in people's belief structures so that they can reconsider and live a better life and a more examined life as a result? And mine is how do you live with people and be friends with people that you don't, don't agree with? That's interesting. You know, I can relate a lot to that because I'm in the, the Northwest, but in a very conservative state and I've tend to go a little more libertarian um, just because I see like in politics you know it's it's fine like you said to talk about you know the sports teams or things that don't matter but in politics all of a sudden we're talking about 
taking away people's rights or mm-hmm. making them believe one thing or the other. And, mm-hmm. and um, especially as a, a homeschooler, I saw that threatened a lot, you know, of like what, what the state expected and what they were trying to implement into other people's lives around us. And so, right. Um, All three of life, liberty and pursuit of happiness can definitely get on the line real quick. With, yep. with bad policy. So what do you feel like as you're going through these challenges of how to maintain those friendships, you know, with these impossible conversations, you know, what were some things that you discovered as you're studying it and working together with Peter? Well, one of the things that I realized primarily, a lot of the background research I did for the book was in the social and moral psychology realms, cognitive science, and in um, really kind of like the negotiations side of things. Pete got into cult negotiation or not cult, uh, sorry, uh, hostage negotiation. I got into like business negotiation and all these books about how to have conversations with people, you know, like uh, difficult conversations that came out of the Harvard negotiation project is one. Uh, how, what are they? I forgot what they're called now. Um, something about, you know, never say no or getting past no. That's what it's called. Getting past no is, is another really big one. Um, and getting to yes. Uh, so these are like business negotiation books. So I, I got all into those, but what they actually helped me realize is that, you know, the old wisdom from the song, you know, no one to hold them, no one to fold them, so on and so forth is really a big deal. And so I think the most important idea that it led for me to connect with was where I used to think I was being silenced. There are different ways to approach that. And one is that letting the person you're talking with, if your goal is to maintain a relationship and your goal is to enhance even the relationship and to, to grow together as a, as a companionship, it doesn't have to be like a romantic relationship with you and your friend. Yeah. You don't want to lose your, you know, relationships that you've had for decades. Right. So you can let people be wrong. (laughs) It's, it was, overwhelmingly profound in today's, you know, super heated, we got to argue politics or whatever it is, everywhere we go with everybody we run into, you can actually just, it's like old wisdom. You can just let people be wrong. Somebody said, you know, your friend is saying whatever you can let them, you, you disagree. You don't have to call them out on it. You don't have to say anything. You can just let them be wrong. If you think of it in terms of politics, their one vote, your one vote, go cancel their vote out. Okay, there you go. Uh, so, <laughs> You know, it's like you're not saving the world by going out and starting a fight with every one of your friends because they might vote the wrong way or they have some belief that bothers you or whatever. You're actually just ruining your relationships and your relationships are going to matter in a lot of different ways. So you can let people be wrong and then you can actually reframe your perspective to one where you're trying to learn from that person. So if, you know, your friend happens to have strongly different beliefs, say, you know, you brought up the coronavirus, maybe they have a strongly different belief and they want to really express why there should be deeper lockdowns. You can switch to a frame where you say, well, let me just hear out your perspective. Let me just hear as much as as you can say. And And then this is where the letting them be wrong comes in without arguing back, you know, just continue to try to learn from their perspective as though they are, you know, the teacher, if you will, uh, and ask meaningful questions where you're trying to understand And with the intention of going and reflecting on it or, you know, just saying that, well, at least I understand my friend better and I see that they're coming from a good place. That was one of the big conclusions. I think that's maybe one of the most important things we say in the book is we talk about evaluating people's intentions, because when you hear somebody who you disagree with, especially about something with a lot of moral salience to it, it's really hard to think they have good intentions. You have to decide that they're stupid or they're evil or they're selfish or they're 
something like that, uh, you know, some terrible thing. And we say that in the book, the most important thing, the only, in fact, assumption you should make about your conversation partner's intentions is that they're probably better than you think they are. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. you know, learning to switch to, like, I, I have several friends with whom I have learned very much the hard way that it doesn't matter how good my arguments are. It doesn't matter how many examples I provide. It doesn't matter how I approach it. I'm not going to change their mind by arguing with them about, say, their political or religious views. And it's just infinitely more interesting, you know, being at loggerheads all the time to just start trying to learn why they think the way they think and let them talk it out at length without fighting back, without saying, yeah, but without, you know, any of that kind of thing. So there is a section about not saying, yeah, but, and there's a section about letting people talk it out. In fact, if you want to change somebody's mind, one of the best ways is to let them talk it out at length. In the cognitive science literature, there's this effect that was discovered called the illusion of explanatory depth. And we summarized it under an unread library effect, which is that people believe they know a lot more than they actually know about things they tend to hold strong opinions about. And the reason is because they know that an answer is known or they believe that an answer is known. So they overestimate how well they know it themselves. And so if you want people to moderate their beliefs, one of the overwhelmingly best ways to do it is to just ask them questions and let them talk. And they end up talking themselves into places where they don't know what they're talking about. They may not even ever say it, but they have that moment's pause in the conversation where they say blah, 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 blah. And then they're like, because uh, 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 they've now hit a spot where, they don't actually know and they're trying to cook up the bullshit that they have to say on the other side of it. And the effect of them hitting bullshit for themselves actually moderates their beliefs. You saying, aha, you're wrong, actually causes them to double down uh, yeah. in the backfire effect. So those were some really interesting things that we discovered in terms of negotiating the aspect of maintaining friendships and even then tying the idea of maintaining a friendship to helping people you know, reconsider their beliefs, as Pete would call having an intervention in their beliefs. Well, and how do you then not, I mean, I think it's important to hear somebody out because my paradigm, that's the whole premise of this podcast is that it changed, it has changed radically. You know, I'd probably say I was, um, you know, years ago, decades ago, that I was more of like this Republican conservative person who's religious and stuff. And, and I've seen myself go like, I think my friends think as she lost her ever loving mind, but all of a sudden I realized like, wow, if I limit somebody's, you know, right to have gay marriage or smoke a joint or something like that, they can then use that power on something that I hold dear, which, you know, was homeschooling my kids. And so, I mean, so I understand the whole idea of like letting people talk it out and letting them, because that's kind of where I came from. But how do you go about now, like not feeling silence, like that you're also given the opportunity to get your opinions voiced? Because I think being able to voice your opinions is also helpful in that helped me change my mind a lot when I acted stupid and, (laughs) and uh, how do you do that? I don't know a better way to say it than there's this kind of humility that comes with recognizing your actual position in the world, which is that most of yeah. us are nobodies. I don't mean to put anybody down, but really we mostly are. And so like, again, it depends on the context. Like if you have views that you want to put out there, I mean, you have a podcast, you have a Twitter feed, you can, you can set up a blog or you can make a website, you can start to publish, you can submit essays, places and so on and so forth. 
But when you're talking to your friend, like I said, you have one vote, they have one vote. Really, it's just a cost benefit or trade-off analysis, if you will. Is it worth damaging the relationship with this person to try to get them to vote in a different way? No. And ultimately, it's your friend that you're pissed off at because they might misuse you know, the ability to control your freedom is not the one who's going to be misusing the ability to control your freedom. Your friend will not be the one who does it. Your friend, like you, will cast one vote for each of the relevant categories or zero, one or zero votes for the relevant categories of politicians who will go on to make those decisions. You also get to have that vote. So in most cases, the person that you're arguing with, and this is, people never believe me with this because beliefs do matter and conversation does matter. But the person that you're talking to, that you're mad at on the internet, almost all the time, they have no more power to affect the thing that they're passionately arguing with you about than you have to do in the opposite direction. You guys are actually mostly on equal footing. So people go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and then, then it's for very little net gain. What do you convince maybe one voter? And then you had to savage a relationship because of it. It's like, again, there's this weird trade-off there where people aren't prioritizing, I feel like, the right things. Another thing, though, if you really do think it's very important to change their mind, there are good ways to change minds and bad ways to change minds. And getting confrontational basically never works. Like, almost never. The call-out works in some cases. You can't say it never, ever works. But the call-out works in so few cases proportionally and almost always results in people doubling down and locking into their beliefs. We've watched a lot of movies, I think, that have showed, you know, Somebody's being an asshole and then somebody comes in and is like, aha, and they call them out. And then all of a sudden it plays the sad music and they're reflecting and there's a montage. And the next thing you know, you know, they're on the right side of the world. And, uh, you know, there's this pivot that happens in the film. And that's not how things usually work. It happens occasionally. We all hear things or get told something that catches us on our heels and we rethink things that we had. But there are in general good ways or better ways, I should say, and, and worse ways to go about that. Savaging your relationships is almost always a bad way because people tend to form their beliefs based on trust. And so if they don't trust you, they're not going to change their beliefs because of you. So maintaining that friendship and that rapport and persuasion slowly over time, um, not by inserting awkward political statements, but just by kind of, you know, what is the, what is the saying? Persuade by winning or, you know, get revenge by winning or whatever, live your best life, show people that it works, and then, you know, help them out where you can. That building of trust is really, really valuable. The other thing is asking questions like, well, why do you think that? And how did you get to that conclusion? To say things like, help me understand that better. I don't, you know, I have a different perspective, so I don't really follow. Getting them to explain it in that kind of a safe and open environment where there's genuine curiosity and there's rapport and all of this often leads people to realize for themselves not to be told that their beliefs are not as well-founded as they thought. And they more often will lead them to changing their minds than arguing with them, which usually causes people to double down or go research to find the right answer that (laughs) that backs up their position. Like, think about it. Every time you're like, yeah, well, here's this fact, blah, blah, blah. And then your friend is like, you maybe you're talking on, you know, instant messages or whatever on Twitter. And then your friends on Google looking up the opposite fact. Every time they do that, they're finding another fact that they believe strengthens their position and they're digging their heels in even deeper. So they feel like they've discredited your fact 
and you know strengthen the commitment to their belief based on a fact they found. And if you take them out of context, there's a fact to support damn near everything. Oh, yeah. So it, it's again, it's a very difficult thing. And in the book, you know, we start talking about stuff like that in the later chapters that we call advanced and expert level stuff, because you actually do have to, as I said, it's humility. You actually do have to step out of it. You have to take yourself out of it. You have to take the fact that you're experiencing your own cognitive dissonance out of it and master those feelings and try to switch the thing over to being a position of curiosity and genuine care for that other person and really wanting to learn what they think. It's really amazing. You know, we're not as pollutable by ideas as we think we are, as we're afraid we are. So you can actually hear ideas that you disagree with and not end up taking them on yourself. Yeah. It's like talking to a libertarian isn't going to make you a libertarian necessarily, or talking to a liberal isn't going to make you a liberal. Um, you can actually hear out their ideas. You can even hear the merits in their ideas. I mean, my whole job right now is to go find the merits in this horrendous critical theory. And yet I still am not convinced by it. I still see why it's wrong. I actually do profoundly understand it on its own terms. So you don't have to take on that which you, you read, you know, or hear. Yeah. And that's what the whole premise of our podcast is, is like, listen to people that have disruptive ideas and you don't have to necessarily be what they're saying. And, but that's the thing I fear about, maybe that's the wrong word to use, but about social media is that we're becoming more and more entrenched in our own tribal feelings. And oh, yeah. you know, we're, we're oh, able yeah. to, we're able to connect with those people that maybe believe like us more readily and shut the other person down. And, you know, you're seeing what's going on with the coronavirus and YouTube or with uh, Mark Zuckerberg and, and how, you know, they're using that platform, which I guess they have every right to, I and mean, they created it and stuff, and we're just passively using it. But, um, I mean, we're just seeing it, it, it's just becoming more polarized in a way. Would you agree with that? Like, you know, yep. um, with, I would. with what you're seeing? What I would tell you, so social media very, very readily allows two things to happen at the same time that cause what you're describing. And so the first of those two things, I, I want to use kind of an image, this is a mental image that's hard to get your head around, but I want to like try to pretend that the internet, rather than being in your computer, in some sense, the internet, I want you to think of it literally like we discovered another planet that we can go to, right? Mm -hmm. So it's everybody, all you have to do is get on your computer and you get to go to the other planet. So if you think, I mean, I don't want to get dorky, but if you think about games like World of Warcraft, where there's a whole or whatever other one that's like that, there's this immersive other world. So imagine that we actually had this immersive other world that we could go to, okay, except that it has no physical reality. So this is very important what would happen is obviously people would try to colonize that space as much as they could. They would start to set up political entities, kind of like the equivalent of countries or states or whatever. Well, in physical reality, the way those things get set up is geographically. You know, you happen to live where you live in the community, surrounded by the people you're surrounded by. There's a certain demographic there. There's a certain mix of attitudes and beliefs and so on and so forth. But you're ultimately limited geographically. Your nearby community, if you just backtrack to the 80s, the only people you really knew were people that lived nearby and in some degree of nearby and, you know, a handful of other people from far away or whatever. And now it's not that way. You get to know people from literally anywhere in the world now. And so in this new world, people are not sorting into these countries, if you will, geographically, they're sorting ideologically. 
So we were calling these things echo chambers before, but I think it's actually more meaningful to think of them as countries in internet space. And the countries are formed by ideology. And so most of the time, most people can use the internet to mostly only hear opinions they agree with. But that's not enough. That's only one of two of the things that's happening. The other thing that's happening is it's like, again, because there's no physical reality to internet space. If you live, say, in Colorado or you live in whatever state you live in, you know, maybe you can climb this mountain. And like I live in Tennessee and there's this famous mountain nearby where you can climb and see seven states from the top. You can see into oh, wow. seven different states from, from the peak of that mountain. And it's like, you know, that's it though. <laughs> that's as much geography everywhere you can see from where I live, unless I get in the car or on an airplane and go somewhere, looks like Appalachian Mountains. If you live in the Rockies, everything looks, I'm, I'm sorry, everything looks the same. I've been to the Rockies a few times. So they, everything looks the same. And so you have this one sense. You never really see something wholly different. However, in internet space, it's like space doesn't matter. So you aren't just surrounded by people that have the same ideological views that you've sorted into your echo chamber. You're also constantly fed a diet of radicalizing material of what the other country thinks. So it's like constantly having a telescope and being able to look straight into the heart of the enemy territory all the time. So you see example after example, steady march of examples every day. If you say your camp, you said is kind of libertarian, so you're in the libertarian camp, you talk to other libertarians maybe online, I don't know if you do or not, but we're gonna say you do for the moment. Well, and they but find you, you, you know, so easily. Yeah. I mean, I have people all the time that friend me. I'm like, I don't know who this person is. Oh, he's a libertarian. Okay, oh, he's a libertarian. <laughs> exactly. Because you're sorting according, yeah, you're forming libertarian country and idea space. And so the problem is, is half those people send you look at what these stupid freaking liberals or these stupid freaking conservatives are doing. So you're mm -hmm. looking straight at the, the worst examples of what the other countries are doing. And we're constantly propagandizing ourselves into how bad the enemy is. Meanwhile, insulating ourselves from having to hear out other views properly by operating within our own echo chambers. So there's a two-sided dynamic there. And this thing is killing, killing the ability to have conversations across divides, which was the point of the, the How to Have Impossible Conversations book, is to start breaking that down. Uh, it's led us to where there's almost no social capital left, and there's certainly no political capital in crossing the aisle. A Republican who works with a Democrat is done. A Democrat who works with a Republican is done. Very little bipartisanship is allowed if, like, you know, Nancy Pelosi were caught having a dinner with, um, I don't know, Mitch McConnell or something like that. Both sides would absolutely lose their marbles and assume that there's some conspiracy afoot. Pelosi's caving into the Republicans. She's a secret conservative. Got to get her out. And she's got to be dethroned. And then McConnell's over there, you know, and he's cavorting with the enemy, proves it's a deep state, blah, blah, blah. It would be a complete meltdown. There's negative political capital in being bipartisan or crossing the aisle, if any political aisle, if you will. And like I said, there's very little social capital. So when you're in a situation that's this nastily polarized, the only thing you can do is to start trying to learn from one another and find out that these other people are not necessarily stupid. They're not evil in almost all cases. There yeah. is evil in the world, but most people aren't evil. 
in fact, most people are more stupid than they are evil. And most people aren't as stupid as we think they are. So there have to be tools available to get people to start talking to one another. And from, from my experience and what I wanted to bring to how to have impossible conversations, it really starts with checking yourself and being willing to listen to other people, hear them out on their terms, let them express their ideas the best way that they can and to try to learn where they're coming from. And if you're going to refute it, to refute literally the best best version of their their argument that they they possibly could put together rather than to just you know squabble about about it from your own perspective uh and staying superficial or not really understanding it so well and maybe with the refute you could say something like oh i totally see where you're coming from if we added this concept in here i would completely agree with you does that make sense like i mean i see like with the with the COVID, like I said, I'm in a pretty conservative place and I see where the COVID situation is a serious thing, but I just don't believe like having the government, our Republican, you know, conservative governor who claims to be a constitutionalist, (laughs) shutting the state down isn't necessarily the best way to, you know, let businesses and let, let us like work through this in a more healthy way. So I, I feel like like we're on the same page, but I just don't agree with maybe just the way we're enforcing it. Does that make sense? So like, sure. like you said, if you were to refute it with the, the kindest way and like, okay, well, but let us add this component into. Yeah, so there's, there's a number of places we actually, there are, there are at least three sections in the book where we talk about that sort of thing explicitly. One comes from improv comedy, as a matter of fact. It's called Yes And or in, in sometimes called yes anding in comedy, where in improv, what they have to do is get up on stage and somebody starts to do part of the act and then they stop where they're, wherever they, they stop. And the next person has to say yes and, and then they have to tell the next part of the story. And then the next person has to say yes and, and they have to tell the next part of the story. So they have to accept everything the previous person said in literally by fiat for the purpose of the improv and then add to it build on it. Okay. So you actually just brought it up as a perfect example of yes ending uh, where you said, you know, I hear what you're saying. And if we add this detail, see, so you hear the little and there. So mm-hmm. I hear what you're saying. And if we just add this little detail, then, then I'm on board completely. So now it's like, you've taken what they've said and you've added something more to it, which is distinctly not you saying, I heard what you said, but meaning I didn't believe a damn word of it. And mm-hmm. So now you kind of shut the thing down. And so when you say that you want to talk about understanding the person and you say, I hear what you said, this has actually come up with the coronavirus with people that were, you know, trapped in lockdown with their romantic partners for the first time, you know, with that much raw time and all these relationships are having trouble. There's this thing that I saw going around being talked about as Rappaport's rules. We have a section on Rappaport's rules. And the first rule is the relevant one, which is, in a sense, Rappaport's rules say that you shouldn't offer a rebuttal or a criticism whatsoever to what somebody else has said until you can repeat it back to them in a way so clearly showing that you understood it, that when they hear you say your version of what you heard, they say, yeah, that's what I meant, or wow, I wish I would have thought of putting it that way. So if, you know, you express your opinion about, say, the coronavirus lockdowns, your conversation partner, if they're following Rappaport's rules, would repeat back to you what they heard. And then you would confirm that they understood your position correctly before 
they would say anything different and, and vice versa. You know, you would make sure that you can articulate the other person's position correctly. And in fact, maybe even better than they did before you add a, add a critique. And the third thing we talk about is, and this is, this is in one of the more advanced chapters of the book, we talk about the process of dialectic, which is ultimately what we're, we're discussing here in general. So the process of dialectic is a, is a philosophical tool. It comes from the two German philosophers, Hegel and Fichte, who developed it to a pretty high level. Of course, dialectic has a famous history also within Marxism, but that's another kind of thing. The process that, that Hegel and Fichte advocated is really the way that philosophical debate is supposed to go if you're trying to arrive at truth. It's where the, the idea of playing the devil's advocate comes in and so on so that you can refine your ideas and improve them. It takes a lot of emotional maturity to engage in this effectively, though. And so what would happen there is you would, say, give your version of the event, say, to me, of whatever the topic is. And then I would say, by a manner of agreement, you and I would have to agree to doing this beforehand or know we're doing it. I would say, you know, well, here are the places I see your argument being weak. And I would point out the weaknesses to your argument, possible rebuttals to various parts. And you'd then say, to kind of caricature the whole thing, ah, yeah, okay. So to improve it, we have to add this, that, and the other thing. And that's sort of what you, you were doing, right? You said, I hear what you've said, and I agree with it to a degree. And if we add this stuff, then what you end up having is something more comprehensive that I can really get on board with. And then the other person could say, ah, yeah. And the thing is that, you know, with that idea, and then you can get in this kind of collaborative process where what will happen if two people engage in it usually is that both people ideally, according to anyway, the way Hegel and Fichte laid it out, both people will start to push toward truth by helping each other eliminate where their blind spots or where their ideas fall short or don't cover all the details or whatever. So you can basically turn an argument into a productive dialogue using that technique. So at least three places in the book, we explicitly talk about how valuable and important making sure your conversations stay in those realms rather than, yeah, but, yeah, but, argue, 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 how important that is if we want to start stepping across and having productive and effective dialogue that helps us solve our problems and get to truth. Yeah. Do you feel like, you know, we, we brought up the problems with social media and how it's creating a, a broader you know, a sense of us both all being in our own tribal areas. Do you feel like though, you know, in the age of the meme, <laughs> that, that we can still use social media as a platform? Because this sounds like, I and mean, this works great if you're having a conversation like say at Thanksgiving dinner or, you know, something like that where you're face to face. But mm -hmm. do you feel like that we can use these same ideas in the social or in, on the online platform realm? Uh, yes, barely. <laughs> yes, barely. So, I mean, generally all of the, the principles apply and I think, you know, rather like there's this whole, um, speaking of memes, there's this whole meme about don't read the comments or don't read the comment mm -hmm. section or whatever. Yeah. Just don't even look at it. You have to kind of realize that public facing social media is all the comment section. It literally <laughs> exactly. is all yeah, the comment really section. Is. And we have a section in the book about this as well. I strongly think, strongly recommend that public facing social media be considered only as the place where seeds of conversations are planted and the conversations are not themselves had. Take the conversation somewhere more private, say if it's on Twitter, use direct messages, 
if you have the person's email, take it to email, although nobody likes to talk by email really anymore, get in some kind of a Google Hangout, use Facebook Messenger, whatever the, you know, get on Signal so you can be encrypted and nobody will find out or WhatsApp or whatever. Take the conversation in private or in a small group and you'll notice almost immediately that there's a completely different dynamic. Yeah. And anybody who's being really obstinate and an asshole is going to back off a lot and they're going to be more give and take and it's a lot more productive. There are a lot of psychological features to public facing conversations that make things very difficult. I should actually plug a friend of mine has built a platform or two friends of mine called letter.wiki. If you haven't seen letter, you should go check out letter. That is a social media platform they've tried to design to solve this problem. And the thing is that all communication is written out in long form letters that start with dear so-and-so and kind of like, an older way of thinking. It's more like email exchanges that are being published as they go. And it's quite good. The the level of, first of all, it's one-on-one, but second of all, the level of um, civility, willingness to hear each other out goes way up. And ultimately, if you want to know, I think the psychology boils down to when somebody makes a public facing statement, and this is really kind of important to understand. So on Twitter and their Facebook you know, post or whatever, whatever social media it happens to be. If somebody disagrees with them, the perception psychologically is that you have lost credibility with the people you were speaking to. And so the motivation to not have been shown wrong is so high that people will really, really, really double down into absolutely ridiculous positions and twist themselves into having to believe them. They'll often become angry or hurt or vulnerable. And anytime somebody starts adding in that emotional layer, it becomes all that much harder to ever get them to change their mind again. Um, The negotiations literature is very clear that if you start getting to matters of, of emotion or identity tied up in a belief, you're probably not going to move that belief until you can defuse the identity and emotion stuff. So when somebody says something in public, say tweet something on, uh, I mean, I'm terrible for this. You tweet something publicly, then somebody comes back at you. Psychologically, the perception is you have now been rendered not credible in front of your audience. The bigger your audience is, the worse it's going to be because say I have, you know, what, 51,000 followers or something on Twitter. So if I say something, even though it's incorrect, one person comes back and snaps at me and makes me look stupid or calls me out on, you know, I missed this or I didn't have that right. My psychological perception, even though maybe two people or 10 people or maybe 100 people or whatever will ever see it, is that 51,000 people now know I'm stupid. And the motivation that that creates for somebody to not be willing to revise that belief or to think differently is so high. It's almost counterproductive to try to call somebody out or bust them or get them, prove them wrong on social media at all. Uh, it's a display thing. It's a performative thing. The, I'm terrible about it. I'm not saying, I mean, I have a hard time with it. too. Let me confess. I'm a hypocrite saying Mm -hmm. this, but if I were smoking three packs a day and telling you that it's bad for your lungs, you know, maybe it's worth listening. I'm still right that it's bad for your lungs. (laughs) So anytime you can taking that conversation to private messages of some form or another is going to be far more productive. We actually discuss an example from the Westboro Baptist Church, it turns out one of the daughters of the 
uh, head of the church. Fred Phelps was the head of the Westboro Baptist Church, that kind of like cult that went around protesting military funerals. Yeah. Because God hates fags, as the signs would say. And the and, abortion clinic thing. Too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and so one of his daughters, uh, Megan Phelps, and now Megan Phelps Roper, she's married, ended up basically having conversations that led her to be de-radicalized out of the Westboro Baptist mindset. And I think she's an atheist now, but I'm not going to be held to that. And the way that she had those conversations was via social media, but in private, not public facing social media, private facing social media, like direct message on Twitter, I think specifically. And the rule that she and the people she was speaking with about these issues had was never reply in anger. If something makes you mad, that means you need to go think about it longer before you give the reply. And so using that fact that, you know, when you and I are having a conversation like this, if you say something, I've got to say something back within like 0.4 seconds or it's weird. But on social media in a private message thread or a text thread or whatever it is, or an email thread, you can send me an, an email. And if I don't respond for two days, it's not really weird. I just didn't get back to you yet. And so that opens up a space where you can actually introduce time and slow down yeah. conversations that tend to get heated or tend to be divisive. But outside of that, you know, first of all, that's not public facing social media. And second of all, uh, which is for, for seeds of conversations to have elsewhere. And then second of all, that's uh, still not ideal because you don't have any like, you know, face to face, you don't hear tone of voice, you don't see the, the emotional reactions you're causing, you don't get the body language and so on. So it's not ideal. You trade off body language, tone of voice and so on for that rather beautiful dimension of time where you can let anger go, you can reconsider, you can think about something deeply before responding. We couldn't have a conversation, let's say that you propose something very thought-provoking to me, and we're in a face-to-face conversation. It's not possible that I'm going to spend the next six hours or two days thinking about it before we continue the conversation. It's just not possible. The conversation has to end. And so that dimension of time adds something new in that can be exploited. But again, public-facing, if I had the magic power to assert a norm that everybody would accept, including binding myself to it, even though it would be hard, uh, it would be that knowing that the public facing side of social media is merely for seeds of conversations and having all meaningful conversations needs to take place in private. I agree. I have found too, though, and I was curious about this. I think your three points are excellent, you know, yes, and then add something more, a rebuttal where you can repeat that back till that you can basically say it better than that other person, and then that process of dialect. But I was wondering too, so one of the things that I have found helpful in social media I am a very emotional person and I will react very violently, especially if I feel like I'm being attacked. But um, sometimes uh, that humility piece that you talked about over and over and over, sometimes I actually go to a private message. I will say, I'm so sorry. You know, I I acted and even though I may not agree with this, I am sorry about the way I responded to you. And I've actually found like just apologizing having that humility to apologize and it helps push those private conversations to a better place. And then I feel like too, then our reactions on if we continue to be friends on whatever platform or end up following each other and tend to be stronger and that person will come back and I've seen it numerous times where they come back and defend you if somebody else is being 
hostile towards you. So like, how do you feel about that apology? Like when you, when you get out of line? So I do, given the circumstances of the the present era, I do have to say you have to be careful with apologies. Because <laughs> <laughs> if end you're up with kind a of, lawsuit type of thing. Yeah. Well, the thing is, if you're badgered into an apology and then you give one, if somebody demands an apology from you and then you give one, especially for some perceived social infraction, then depending on the circumstances, and I, I'll just cut straight to the chase. If it's from the social justice perspective, it's forcing, oh, you said something that could be construed as sexist, so you're terrible and you need to apologize to the community. If That's you what do they're that, trying to get us to do anyway, right? To apologize the, for your manhood or... <laughs> right. If you do that... And spreading. <laughs> that's when you lose, right? That's the yeah. end. Getting you to try to give a public apology like that is a submission technique. It is to get you to submit to cognitively accept the thing that you're being forced to apologize about. And so you can't do that. You can't do that. Now that said, if you have a personal one-on-one thing and it's you owe another person an apology, that's a different matter, right? So the Mm -hmm. difference between being demanded for a public apology or even being demanded to apologize for something that you don't think was wrong. But if you do feel like you're genuinely out of line, an apology is necessary. And I would again say public apology, probably not. A public apology is a very different thing. But if like you flip out on somebody on Twitter in a so-called conversation that went awry, especially public facing, and then you send them a direct message like, I'm sorry, I just got really emotional. I felt attacked. I don't normally like to be that way. Just wanted to say I'm sorry. That I strongly support. I think that's extremely important to be doing, to accept that humility and to do that. Not in the sense where you're being manipulated into it, but in the sense where you genuinely want to have a more productive dialogue with somebody. The other thing that, you know, people got to realize is that that person, like why the apology is so valuable, you don't necessarily know what's going on. Like if you you and I are face to face, you you still may not know what I'm dealing with that day, right? But you have a better insight. You have no idea what the people on Twitter not only are dealing with that day or that week or whatever, you don't know what they're doing in that moment. You can't see them. You have no idea what's happening in their lives. And so they might snap back at you or you might be the person snapping back and there might actually be pretty good reasons for it because uh, I can pull examples from my own experience. People often tell me, you know, that with all the social justice stuff, you know, they're like, well, you, you seem to think it's everywhere. Well, maybe you don't realize that people send me 200 examples of it today. That's outside of my research. So am I being misled or am I actually seeing the extent of the problem? It's very difficult to say, but that's going to lead me to react to yet another example of it. Like people might get upset that I'm just sarcastic about, oh, here's another example of this. I just get kind of sarcastic about it. But maybe that's like the 185th of them I saw today right? And I saw 200 yesterday and I saw 200 the day before. And so you don't know what's going on. There are a lot of people, for example, some people would have saw that I put on Twitter a video of me practicing with this large sword that I have. And lots of people decided to make fun of it that I expected. I'm used to that, whatever. But then I had people, mostly libertarian types, by the way, uh, who (laughs) decided to like point out that I should not bother with the sword and get a gun as if that's the purpose. And I reacted pretty meanly to a few of these people. And what they don't understand is that uh, my neighbor is a libertarian and he has waved his gun in the air and said, this works better. Every time he sees me practicing with my sword for like 15 years, 
and it gets old. Yeah. It gets old. And so they don't know that though. They're like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm just going to make a funny joke. Ha ha. And he'll take it in good humor. No, not taking it in good humor. That one's old. <laughs> but yeah. you don't know that because you don't really know me. You haven't really spent time with me. And so you don't actually know why the other person on the other end is reacting the way that they're reacting necessarily. Yeah. So uh, that's another reason why, hey, let's, if somebody does come to apologize, for example, you know, take a second and think, you know, okay, maybe there's something to this. Maybe this person really is a good person and something just like triggered an emotional response or whatever and try to take their apology seriously, you know, so it kind of cuts both ways, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. That sign that you see, you know, be kind because you never know what somebody else is going through or has been through or whatever is, it's very true. And you can see people act in anger on social media. Maybe sometimes the best thing to do is just give them the benefit of the doubt that maybe they're (laughs) having a bad day or whatever. But that's interesting. I mean, it's like, yeah, yeah, it's like you never know. I don't talk about it because it's none of anybody's business, but like, in my personal life, if you will, last year was a, 2019 was not a pretty year. Yeah. And the fact that I was able to maintain, you know, anything resembling positive composure as a public figure, if you will, on top of what I was dealing with in that regard is rather astonishing. And so you really, you don't know what people are carrying and hopefully, you know, people will remember to be nicer. But one rule of thumb that I've always had is that if your solution to a social problem is that suddenly everybody will be different, it, that you're, you're, you're just going to piss yourself off. It's never, <laughs> it's not, you're, yeah, it's not going to happen, which is again with the social justice stuff, what the problem is, is they want society to change utterly around them. And when you want society to change rather than mostly for yourself to change, you've got a big problem with your, not to say that societal changes aren't important, not to say they can't be made. If it's like, oh, well, everybody just has to take personal responsibility since you're a libertarian, I'll poke that way. <laughs> Guess what? It ain't going to happen. It just ain't going to happen. And all you're going to do is be pissed off for the rest of your life because everybody ain't going to do it. Yeah. Well, and I like what you were saying before, like sometimes the best thing you can do is live your best life, you know, and trust that people are just watching you. And that's the way I feel about parenting too. I mean, I can give my kids lecture after lecture, which most of them they'll tune out, especially if they go on too long. But the best thing that I can do is just live my best life, live those values that I say are important to me, and then they pick up on it and And I think you can do that with your neighbors as well. You know, like, yeah, this is the way I believe. This is how I try to live. I'm not perfect at it. And then slowly, you know, maybe people learn to appreciate that about you, about yourself, you know. Yeah, that's the kind of dialogues you'll end up. If you take that argument you started to have on social media to private, that's a lot of times the dialogue you'll end up having. So it's a much better way to go. Yeah. Um, Social media, it we really, really need to be doing as a society some hard thinking about, and I don't mean that in the sense that I was just criticizing. I mean, we need to put some scientists on this. <laughs> we need to actually start figuring out the psychological and sociological impacts of social media and start figuring out, you know, how do you treat it? A norm for us in the, the Gen X group, and we kind of make fun of the boomers for it, is like boomers thought that anything that was on TV must be true. Yeah. And like Gen X people had, you know, don't believe everything you see on TV. And so a lot of us are like, yeah, it was on TV. And you just kind of shrug your shoulders and you don't, you don't get into it. Well, 
what's going on on social media is like a whole new level of that. It's like way beyond the the reach of television and the psychological inputs of it are so much more profound because you are, at least you think you are, and sometimes you're not arguing with a real person. That person might actually not be arguing in good faith because they're an agitator, a troll. They might be uh-huh. a paid troll. They might be a bot as you're actually arguing with a machine <laughs> that's not even real. I mean, there's a lot of different things that could be going on, but when you perceive that you're you're going back and forth with a real person who really believes it, it, it really screws with your head. And so we do, I think, need to start understanding that social media is a part of our world now. It's not going to go away. It will, in fact, get more intrusive. And one of the things we have to be able to do is to start figuring out how to condition our beliefs that way. We need the equivalent of don't believe everything you see on TV for social media and really need to start getting, you know, that thought into our heads. So we're not the boomers who believe everything. Oh, I saw an article. Um, yeah, did you? Well, and that's why I appreciate young people because I think I think Gen Xers are like, oh, it was on the internet, you know, so we just believe it. Whereas our children, you know, my son's always saying, mom, just because it's on the internet doesn't mean it's true. And Right. But we need to appreciate that. Like maybe uh, get rid of the the ageism that's uh, infecting our society of like, yeah, we can understand and love those people that are older than us. But then we also have to like, wow, my son understands like my kids are on social media a lot less than even myself because for me, it's this new medium and it's so exciting Uh and I can connect with people, you know, that just disappeared for decades out of my life that I didn't know what happened to them and you know then they come they crop back up and you're like wow that isn't the same person <laughs> anyway so it's they actually see that too that. yeah but i, I see think- that too younger people doing like social media diets and like they're yeah. they t- are much more careful about it yeah there are definitely generational things and people will figure it out but uh i mean i remember there's a really good article a while back in the atlantic and it said that twitter is not the problem it's that people take twitter seriously that's yeah. the problem Exactly. I agree. Uh, I think we're starting to get some research on social media and what it's doing, at least to our, our mental states, you know, like, I know there's tons of research on how people that spend too much time on social media end up with bigger problems with depression and things like, it's like watching the news, you know, 24 seven type of thing. Yeah, I think that there are a number of reasons for that. One is you're constantly getting eroded by um, cognitive dissonance you run into. But I actually think that social media increases depression. And at least, you know, judging from my own experience in life, uh, if I get kind of down, Uh, or even depressed properly, I know that I start turning, it's like it's too much energy to go out and be social and force myself to go do all that thing. And so it's Mm -hmm. like, well, I can just pick up social media. So what I'm doing is I'm getting online, I'm getting on Twitter, I'm getting on Facebook or whatever, and I'm trying to feel connected, feel connected. Yeah, I'm trying to like do social interaction by proxy. But it's inherently unsatisfying. You never actually get your need all the way met. And Mm -hmm. so you end up going away from it even like less connected feeling. And so it, I think exacerbates. It's like uh, porn for the brain type of thing. <laughs> like, I, yeah, I think it exas- I think it makes your depression worse. And I mean, that's without getting into the sides where, you know, you're seeing everybody doing like, you know, fake images of themselves of how great their lives are when really theirs are miserable and there's a comparative privation thing. And you're like, oh, other people get to have boats and I don't have a boat. And, you know, everybody else is successful and I'm the only one who sucks. You know, so there's other aspects too, but even just the dynamic of I'm trying to meet my social needs by proxy through a medium that cannot 
by definition, meet my social needs all the way. Yeah. It, that's just a downward spiral. And like I said, as you get depressed, if you've ever been depressed, you know, it's like an infinite wall of energy required to like get up and go out and get a beer. It's like so much energy to meet a friend to go hang out or whatever. And so to really meet your social needs in some way or connect with other people becomes too difficult. And what's there in your hand, your smartphone is just literally, you don't even get off the couch. You're laying there in your crappy shirt. You're, you know, you're, you're just being a slob, had a beer you got at the grocery store. Good enough. And so none of the social aspect is occurring. And I think it can really just that one dynamic, I think can really accelerate some of the mental pathologies that develop. I agree. It's a toxic place. Yeah. Well, I'd love to hear, um, you know, let's get off the albatross around the neck of, you know, this book that we've been talking (laughs) about. I love the book. I think there's so much that we can learn, but I'd love to hear like what you're doing with uh, your own life with the new discourses and, and how that's an educational platform for your work that you're doing. Do you want to tell us more about that? So of course, we talked a little bit about the grievance studies affair, if you will, the many fake papers I wrote with uh, Helen and Peter uh, in 2017 and 18. And that's really kind of like the origin story for new discourses. Ultimately, you know, that led us to become rather conversant in the literature of social justice. Uh, you even have an encyclopedia there. That that's what I decided was, was an absolute necessary thing is, you know, starting to learn about that. It's like, wow, these people use words in different ways than normal people. And somebody needs to write that down in a way that it can be read because the only people who ever write about this stuff and they write about it incessantly are people who believe it. And so you never get that, you know, kind of detached, cold outsider view that's like, eh, well, this is what they actually say. This is why they actually say it, but I'm not trying to brainwash you into it. And so what I decided to do was originally we decided to build a repository for the grievance study stuff, which will eventually be a part of new discourses. And then started growing with the decision to make the encyclopedia in particular to make educational resources, not like school curricula or anything, at least not yet. So all the articles, there's articles, there's podcasts, there's videos, and then there's this encyclopedia, all the articles, all the podcasts, all the videos. And then also the encyclopedia itself have kind of the overarching mission of explaining how not just social justice, but any of these kind of critical methods, critical theory methods that are blocking our ability to have good discourse, how those operate, how they think, and so on. So my expertise is overwhelmingly in the social justice stuff. So of course, it's overwhelmingly focused in that direction. I'm writing mostly about that. Therefore, people who submit articles are writing mostly about that. I do think there are parallel problems happening on both left and right. So, and I, critical methods, in fact, are at the heart of both. I think that there are massive impediments to dialogue on both sides, but my expertise is on how the left side of that equation is working. And so it's primarily focused on disambiguating that for people so they can understand. And that encyclopedia, which I call translations from the wokish, is the overwhelmingly most important object and kind of the new discourses set of offerings. Oh, that's awesome. Well, and I noticed, I thought I saw somewhere when I was looking earlier that you've joined up somewhere with Thaddeus Russell because of our homeschooling, you know, uh, anyway, that kind of thing. I know he's been on um, School Sucks podcast a little bit. So do you feel like this is, it is an educational platform because he's 
he kind of moves in that direction, it seems like. Well, I, I mean, for, for me, it's, it's not quite that. No, Thaddeus is all right. You know, I went on his an unregistered podcast with Helen and then I went, I did one of his Renegade University live sessions or whatever. And we've had a little bit of productive dialogue. Uh, you know, we have some agreements and some disagreements, but uh, we've come to discover that uh, we respect each other's views more than we thought from our first meeting, which was a bit contentious. <laughs> and so, you know, he's focused a lot more specifically on on that kind of thing, that the homeschooling and school sucks and unschooling and all of these kind of things. I am trying to provide when I say educational resources, you know, it's sort of like sets of, I don't want to compare myself to Vox with its freaking explainers, but it's like, really, it's like explaining it's explainers and that's the articles and then a reference material. That's the encyclopedia so that people, you know, if you can't encounter the word diversity and you know that the woke people, the social justice people use it in a particular way, but you're not quite sure what it means, or you need to tell somebody, Hey, you know, when they say diversity, they mean something that's not quite what most people mean by it. Boom, there's an entry. Now you can go link that. You can go share that. You can read it yourself or whatever and come to understand. So there's this gap of understanding that I see from what the critical social justice type people are saying and then what people hear when they say it. There's yeah. this huge gap. So you can think of it like the Grand Canyon and they're on one side and you're on the other. And it's, I'm trying to build the bridge across the gap. So that when they say the stuff, you can understand what they mean. And the more people who understand what they mean, the more likely we are to be able to have an honest dialogue about the points they're raising to be able to suss out of what they're saying has value and what is crap. And, and, and you know, as they say, separate the wheat from the chaff. So maybe educational resources is a bit broad. I'm primarily producing a reference material, but okay. the articles on there are more like explainers. So it's sort of in the videos and the podcasts are more like explainers. So if that kind of puts you in that kind of position, I don't want to be an activist. I know that I'm somewhat activist in my orientation by the fact that it's trying to create change or some shit, but <laughs> ultimately I'm really trying to produce, you know, explainers and reference materials, which is a different kind of project than what Thaddeus is doing. I think it's a much needed platform to just understand what they're meaning and maybe... I'd love to talk about your other book that you're doing with uh, Helen Pluckrose, The Cynical Theories. But, you know, when somebody says uh, social justice, like I used to like agree with them, like, yeah, I think everybody, you know, all races, all genders or whatever should have social justice. But that has a totally different meaning now in the fact that like, like the words that they're saying are almost making us really cynical about, well, what do you really mean by that? <laughs> you know, what's Yeah, the well, Exactly. And that, I mean, that's actually what Cynical Theories is about. So Cynical Theories is a book that Helen and I wrote last year, and it comes out in August. It got delayed because of the, the virus. It turns out there are no books being printed. So you have to wait. <laughs> and so Amazon's not ordering books. So the book printers were like, eh, non-essential and we're out. <laughs> if Amazon's not ordering books to its warehouses, we're not selling any books. So we're just going to wait. Everything's on pause. So we wrote that book to try to explain in specific, how social justice as a movement that we see today has strong influence from the postmodern school of thought. We touch on it, but we don't go into depth about how it also has a lot of uh, background in the critical theory side. New Discourses is kind of tackling that more. 
than cynical theories did, but we're trying to map out what's going on with this philosophy. So in broad, broad strokes, there are different philosophies of justice and they can fall into different schools. And there are liberal conceptions of social justice. A lot of people don't know, in fact, that the original conceptions of social justice came up in religion. They were religious concepts of social justice. It was actually, the whole term was coined by a Jesuit priest And then it had a lot of influence within certain corners of the Catholic religion. And then it got its big push in the United States as a result of the Baptists, who we now associate with being very conservative, but they were quite progressive in the early 1900s. A guy named Walter Rauschenbusch wrote what was called the social gospel. He was a preacher in Hell's Kitchen in New York City. And uh, he wrote what was called the social gospel, and it outlined an entire theory of social justice. And so there are different approaches. There's a very religious approach to social justice that's kind of rooted in the gospel and allegedly Jesus taught. And then there's this very liberal approach. It was outlined in great detail by, Mm -hmm. you know, the philosopher John Rawls, who talked about the veil of ignorance and all the rest of how you can try to achieve a fair and just society in terms of social and cultural factors. And then there's this one that's rooted in postmodernism and critical theory that's a totally different freaking animal. Because it's rooted in radical critical theory, it's very uh, revolutionary, it's very radical, it wants to overthrow the existing system or replace it with its own, and because it's rooted in postmodernism, it doesn't believe that truth is possible, and so social justice has something to do with lived experience instead of having to do with uh, finding out what's true about the world, and so it's really not the thing that it advertises itself as being. I'm, I'm like you, everybody that I know is like us. Yeah, we want more fairness and, if you will, in the broad meaning of the term social justice for different races, different sexes, different genders, if people want to have whatever's going on, great. Whatever this identity politics stuff is, fine. We want there to be more fairness and equality, but we're talking about actually a philosophical movement less than 100 years old that does, if to just make it clear, does have its roots in Marxism and overthrowing existing systems for a radical new one that won't work. That intellectual tradition has its own theory of justice and its own theory of social justice, its own theory of tolerance, its own theory now of person, of a theory of mind, has this whole different way of viewing the world. And so they brand themselves really, really well, like, oh, no, we're like the civil rights movement. And in fact, they consider the civil rights movement to have been, you know, this liberal agenda that was used through what's called the interest convergence thesis to just maintain racism and create new problems for black people. So it's like, no, you're not trying to continue the civil rights movements, but you're trying to cash in on its brand. So it's a very different thing than people think. It's a big problem. And, you know, so new discourses in a very real way, but also cynical theories exists to try to start explaining that problem, mapping it out so people can understand how the idea of social justice, which is valuable, has been hijacked by a radical cult. That's interesting. Uh, Well, and I would love to talk more just specifically about that book. Do you feel like, you know, just the same way as we talked about that paradigm change about what you discover during writing the book, uh, How to Have uh, Impossible Conversations, do you feel like you know, you talked about like when you started into this thing in 2010, that you were um, really into that science thing and then realized, have you seen like a paradigm shift or change in like what you thought the political movement was about to what it is now? I mean, what's the... Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I thought starting out in all of this, that it was for the more broad term social justice, the way normal people understand it. 
and that it just had this really weird bit of sociological theory attached to it that was causing people to be misled. And now I understand that the sociological theory is actually the central thing. And it's not even fair to call it a sociological theory because it's much bigger than that. And it's literally, it's an entire worldview. It's not possible to understand it properly without being able to think that way. It's, it's a completely different culture that is trying to supplant the culture that we have and replace it with their own. And it makes it really hard to communicate to people because you're like, you know, I get messages all the time. Can you break this down and put it in terms we understand better? It's like, no, you don't get it. You, you don't understand it if it's in terms you understand. <laughs> they think in completely different terms. That's why they've subverted the language. That's why things like racism and diversity and even authentic consciousness and all of these validity, truth, all of these things have different meanings fundamentally different meanings for the mindset that critical social justice has. So to understand that it's not normal people with a little bit of weird views and switching over to it's a completely different way to think about the world, which now is called wokeness, but it's more generally, if you hearken back even to Marxism, called critical consciousness. And in the sense that it's very functionally like a religion, just one that doesn't believe in God. If you want to kind of understand, rather than having a God, it believes in society. And rather than having salvation, it replaces that with liberation from oppression that has to be attained in the world, not some other way. And so when you understand it like that, it's a completely different object. It's a completely different thing. And so when, you know, we can kind of go full circle here then and get back to 2010. I was really worried about creationism, biblical creationism being put in schools. And in 2020, I'm very worried about critical social justice, which I now see as a faith practice being put into schools, (laughs) where it's literally central now. It is utterly central throughout the school systems now. Wow. It's an incredible thing how when we really start to deep dive into stuff, we realize that, no, it's really switched and it's more tainted than what we thought. You know, you know what I mean? Like, right. So um, I get accused all the time, you know, of being like, I flipped sides that I used to be super (laughs) left and now I'm super right. And it's like, no, actually, as it turns out, the core issue that I got started with all this is literally still exactly the same issue. I don't want moral instruction being the heart of school. Yeah. That's it. No matter which way it it comes. Right. So in 2010, it was cutting against conservatives who were trying to put biblical creation and biblical values in school. And in 2020, it's cutting against these literally culturally Marxist radical leftists. So it's the same exact view, the same exact motivation, which is secularism (laughs) in broad strokes, secularism. Keep your moral law out of secular law keep your moral law out of the public institutions. It's literally the same freaking motivation that I had 10 years ago. It's just cutting against the other side because this kind of fundamentalist religion of the left that nobody understands is a fundamentalist religion yet has really gained a ton of power and is remaking society around itself into what, if it had a God, would be a theocracy. Wow. I think that uh, you're speaking my language here. That's, that's somehow we've been, uh, 
you know, we're bosom buddies at heart here because I, I feel the same that um, what we were fighting against before, we really see it on the other side as well. You know, that it's not a cut and dry situation that... I mean, the parallels are striking. One yeah. of the main pushes everybody seems to have forgotten about in the early 2010s to get biblical stuff put into schools was this historical revisionist named David Barton. David Barton, his main deal, he had like the support of Ted Cruz and a bunch of these other like conservative politicians. His big push at the time was that all of the founding fathers of the United States were actually hardcore Christians, even Thomas mm-hmm. Jefferson, which no, is... they were, yeah, they were well, libertines, right? Like they were right. about liberation. And so his whole project was to recast the American founding as this huge Christian intentionally Christian theocracy type movement. So this was David Barton, 2010, 11, 12-ish. And then flip it around now, and what do you have? 2019, you have coming out the 1619 Project trying to cast all of America as slavery, and that needs to be talked about how all of America is built on slavery and systemic racism and all of the other side of the thing. And so you have a historical revisionist back then trying to make the case that America was fundamentally Christian, therefore put Christianity in. And now you have a revisionist historian trying to make the case and more successfully making the case that America was fundamentally racist. So we have to put all this anti-racist religion into schools. And it's like, wow, it's the same stuff. It's, it's literally the same stuff. It's just being done by a different faith tradition. And this faith tradition believes only in like certain systemic powers of society because it's rooted in critical theories that then took up postmodernism and a lack of belief in objective truth. I'm still saying the same thing, y'all. Keep, <laughs> keep, the, keep your religion out of the secular state. Yeah, whatever way you want to force somebody to believe, let's, let's not do that. That's awesome. Well, I'd love to hear, like, what are your long-term goals for new discourses? And are you going to continue to write books and stuff like that? I mean, where do you feel like your life's direction is headed? And where does that I mean, right now, it's, it's so overwhelming, the idea of continuing to write and completing, if that's even possible, the Social Justice Encyclopedia. That yeah, I was looking at it and you've got a good start on it, but there's several words in here that you like you're still trying to find definitions for. Is that right? Well, they take a long time to research and write and really good strides. I can write one or two a day, but I can't do it every day. And so then I have to take time to go research and to actually rest, uh, meaning do other work because there is no rest. But I have to rest my brain from doing the same thing. So there are something like if you count what I've got in my draft folder that I haven't loaded up to the site yet and what's on the site, there's something like 125 terms currently filled out. And I think there are something like 500 total that I've identified that need to be written. And I'm doing it by myself. So it's extraordinarily time consuming and difficult. I could actually probably sit down Right now, if we just went in a marathon podcast session and give a cogent explanation of 450 out of the 500 words without looking a damn thing up. So I know it. I just, it takes forever to put it down. It takes a lot of time. So um, I'm trying to chug through it, but the prospects of finishing that thing ever, like as far as ahead as I can see, I know that some people are agitating for another book. So... <laughs> well, and how how are work. you making? I mean, how are you making your living though? Because it sounds like I'm this, not. <laughs> I was gonna say, sounds like this dictionary. I mean, or the Everybody's encyclopedia. Everybody's accusing me of being a grifter, but ultimately, what it is is that I'm grifting off of my wife, <laughs> more <laughs> or less. Uh, 
I am not currently making a living with this. I'm trying to make it actually financially self-sustaining. I don't have any ambitions of getting rich off of it. Hopefully, I mean, our intention for the year was that I was going to, you know, the encyclopedia will make it clear that I know what I'm talking about and then I can go and talk and people can pay me to talk and I can make some money giving, you know, lectures or whatever or consulting for people. But for the moment with the pandemic, there's not a lot of travel happening. There's not a lot of conferences happening. So there's not a lot of any of that happening. Well, and do Uh, you find it hard to have a a side kind of pick you? Because it sounds like you're not really in the religious right, but you're not really in the far, you know, left type of thing. I mean, is there a niche that you've found that of people that really catch on to your, what you're trying to say and that, um, that you feel like you can go speak to those type of people? It's shockingly wide open, actually. It's rather than having a niche, it's like, there are like 10 of them and I don't really fit in any of them, but that's okay. The only faction that won't have anything to do with me is anything from about the middle of the left, leftward. They they don't even want to talk to me. They don't they don't want me to exist. So whether it's conservatives who are religious, libertarians who are non-religious but pretty right wing, whether it's you know central leftist type people, whether it's open-minded academics versus the rather angry ones. There's a ton of different categories of people that I don't really fit into any of these. Very like I got invited to go talk with a bunch of um, very conservative religious people. I've been, you know, able to talk in front of very conservative political people. I don't agree with these people on probably like four things. As far as religion and politics go, we probably have like four points of agreement in general. That's about it. And then everything else is like, you know, disagreement. But it's an interesting and and, and odd experience. I definitely, the how to have impossible conversations thing is relevant because I'm constantly surrounded with people I don't agree with. Um, (laughs) But no, there has not yet been any one niche group. I mean, what got called the intellectual dark web type people would probably be the closest thing that I would fit in with. But those people are kind of like cool kids and I never have been and never will be one of the cool kids. So I don't know how that'll ever work out. Well, that's interesting. I, I mean, I, I get where you're going. I don't feel like my, necessarily my podcast has a niche because I'm not, I mean, I've been called out that I'm not uh, secular enough because I speak about my religion and then I'm not religious enough to be in my religion. <laughs> and so I understand where you're coming from. Like I said, I feel like we're kindred spirits here. Or yeah. I mean, I get, I get, I'm not relig- I'm not atheist enough because I don't yell about religion all the time and I talk to religious people and I listen to them about their religious stuff and I let them talk about religious stuff without arguing with them and it's like (sighs) yeah it can really be quite a headache for sure but I've talked to you for like two hours I'm gonna have to split this one up (laughs) this podcast up I didn't plan on it I just find what you're doing really provocative and just exciting and you know there's so many different ways we could go but do you have any maybe parting advice for our listeners and then give us your contact information where we can find out more about the stuff that you're doing and continuing to do uh, parting advice. It depends on what we're talking about. You know, if, you're, <laughs> exactly. if you want to talk about, the, I, I'm involved in a lot of crap. I would actually advise you to try to make a conscious effort to make friends that you don't agree with politically and to take the effort to hear them out on their views. That's kind of like the impossible conversation side. I would urge you to, I mean, the best place I have to self-promote in that case, the best place I know of to do it is um, my own website on newdiscourses.com. But I would urge you to actually learn as far as the social justice stuff or actually learn that it's not, it is not the thing it advertises itself to be. 
and find out what they're doing. You know, make up your own mind in the end about whether or not you want to support what they're doing and how they're doing it. I'm not going to tell you that you have to agree with me in that regard, but you should at least be properly informed about the way they see the world and understand what it is for what it is. So I would advise that if you want to be an activist, as many people do, my advice is very simple, and this is relevant to the whole social justice thing, although it applies to other political orientations as well, which is that if you learn anything about critical theory, where it came from, they distinguished critical theory from traditional theories. Traditional theories try to understand the world and then go out and do whatever you're going to do with that information, whereas critical theories have a vision for a better world and then try to adapt everything around that vision. So I would tell you that you need to do traditional theory. You need to really try to see critical theory. Not, it's not useless. It's a very powerful industrial solvent for ideas and you would not use a very powerful industrial solvent recklessly. So if you want to change the world, do bother to understand the world first really do try to understand it and let believe in objective truth, first of all, and then let truth guide your decision-making processes. And if you're in a place of decision-making over, you know, what kinds of activism, if you're in like an organization or whatever, my advice would be don't hire critical theorists. Just don't hire them. Uh, They're not going to help your organization. They're not going to advance it. And in the end, your organization will get ripped apart from the inside if you bring them in. They only have an industrial solvent at hand. So, you know, you've got to tailor your methods toward finding truth first and then working forward. I think actually all of those pieces of advice and and, uh, kind of mesh together. Oh, yeah. One other don't argue public facing online. In fact, don't even think of public facing social media as a place where conversations happen. It's a place where conversations start. Yeah. And I don't have to self-promote now. If you want to take it somewhere, take it to my friend's platform that I have no financial stake in called letter.wiki. I'm going to definitely hook that up to our show notes because I, I think it's really important. So what I'm trying to get from what you're saying is that we have to have both. We have to have those traditional principles, basically, like honesty is always the best policy or or something like that. But you also have to have the other side of like to be able to grow and to become um, like an innovative person. We also have to look at progressive ideas as well. Is that like where you're? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, Okay. Depending on how, how far you wanted to go into the politics thing, you can easily think of it the way my dad put it for me as a teenager is that you've got the, the liberals are like the gas pedal. The conservatives are like the brake pedal. Don't go too fast, but we got to go somewhere. So you need both. And it's like having a left hand and a right hand on the steering wheel. One's the left side and one's the right side. And if they don't agree on how to steer the car, it's going to crash. So they've got to actually work together. So you do have to hear both. The left is very angry at the thing called the status quo. And they want to break down the status quo and they want to get away from the status quo. But on the other hand, we established the establishment for a reason. The establishment isn't all bad. So you do have to look at these things in balance. You have to be able to listen to the ideas of change so you're not stagnant. But at the same time, you can't just change for change's sake or change radically and violently because it ends up never working. Uh, So yeah, you've definitely got to take seriously both sides and see these things as collaborative If you think about just the gas pedal, brake pedal thing, left and right, then it's very easy to see getting somewhere in your car is a collaborative effort between those two pedals. You have to use both. You have to use them at the right times. You can't just stamp on the brake and hold it. Conservatism all the time isn't going to work. Then you can't just stamp on the gas and hold it. 
can't go flying around corners or run through intersections everywhere you come to them. You've got to use them both and you've got to use them at the right times. And that requires understanding each side and that requires dialogue across the sides so that you can coordinate that effort. I agree. I always talk about disrupting the status quo is, you know, one of my taglines, but I do believe like there are certain principles, like you just don't disrupt those and have that turn out in a, I mean, you it's know, an industrial solvent thing, right? Yeah, exactly. Like if you were trying to, I, I was trying to explain this to somebody the other day and I couldn't think of a good example, but if you were trying to like, let's say you have to fix a chair and it's been glued together. And so you need to put a solvent on there in order to get in and dissolve the glue and pull the, it's like something's creaky, it's it's unstable, you know you have to fix it, you know what you have to do to fix it is gonna, you know, you gotta fix the part where the legs go together and all this, but they're glued together and they're glued together badly, so you need to take the old glue off, put new glue on, you have to put solvent on there, but you're not just gonna like, take the whole chair and dunk it in solvent, right? Yeah, you just want so to So the status legs. quo yeah. of the chair is not okay, but you're not just gonna go soak the chair in solvent, you're gonna like, squirt or even inject or you know spread the solvent intelligently where it needs to go to dissolve the existing glue hopefully don't remove the varnish or if it's a really powerful solvent like dissolve the wood or you can imagine it being metal or whatever else you want to take something like that disruption of the status quo and you want to do that very intelligently not breaking everything that we have just because you're trying to like see outside of the box yeah. right yeah. Getting outside of the box just requires lifting your head up. It doesn't require setting the box on fire. Yeah. It is, I don't, didn't mean to swear, but I get excited. <laughs> I try to keep it pretty clean just because yeah, we have bombs. That one out. <laughs> People <see>. like beeps. <laughs> it's true. I, they do. It makes it more like sexy because it's... <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Well, I think you're speaking my language to a T. Um, that's exactly what we're about. Like, we don't want to totally dismantle the education system, but we definitely want to clean it up a lot. So, sure. and, and make it more user friendly and more innovative, <laughs> you know, all those types of things. So, all right. Well, today we've been chatting with James Lindsay. He's the co-author of How to Have Impossible Conversations. You can find out more about him and the ideas that we discussed today at newdiscourses.com. Definitely check him out on Twitter where, where I was pestering him at Conceptual James. And then you were saying like uh, letters.wiki.com? Yeah, it's letter.wiki. So just letter. like letter, like singular dot W-I-K-I is a platform for conversation in letter format usually i think are entirely one-on-one -on -one. very different vibe than nasty twitter facebook etc very awesome. good place to go for conversation awesome well i'm definitely going to get on that but thank you so much for connecting with the luminous mind and teaching us about a, a vast array of uh, topics here but i really appreciate your time yep it was a good time thanks Thank you for listening to The Luminous Mind. Music featured in this episode from Scott Holmes. To learn more about our podcast, check us out at theluminousmind.net.